0: Okay. Welcome everybody to the clinical social work podcast. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today. His name is Jun Sung Hong, and he's going to be talking about his study about the correlates of perceived school safety among black adolescents in Chicago And in this study, they looked at sexual orientation differences. And I thought this was a really, really interesting study because it has such a cross-sectionality between race and sexuality and also urban, which I think is, um, I mean, in social work, we talk a lot about the differences between urban and rural, but I, I love that this was really an intersection of these different identities. So I'm gonna let you introduce yourself and and then once you introduce yourself to our listeners, if you could just share a little bit of an overview of the study so they can get a flavor of what you looked at and what were some of the main um, research questions and really what prompted you to, to do this study and then a little bit about what you found. So with that, I'll let you take it away.
1: Okay, so hello everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Jun Song Hong. I go by June. I'm an associate professor in the School of Social Work at Wayne State University, which is located in Detroit. And I've been there for about 10 years. So I received my MSW at the University of Michigan and my PhD at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in 2023. I'm sorry, in 2013. And I've been at Wayne State since 2013. So I've been there for about 10 years. So throughout my 10 years and even before that, I've done numerous research on topics including bullying, school violence, and youth violence, um, especially from the perspectives of um, adolescents who are historically oppressed, vulnerable, and marginalized. For example, racial and ethnic minority, sexual minority, immigrants, um, youth living in poverty, and so forth. So to give you an overview of the study, so the study that was published in um, Clinical Social Work Journal, aimed to explore whether the protective factors in the literature for Black sexual minority adolescents in urban neighborhoods are similar to that of their heterosexual peers. So, the participants for the study were adolescents, um, African American adolescents, ages 20, 12 to 22 years, who lived in four neighborhoods in Chicago South Side. And you might have heard that Chicago South Side is um, not a very safe environment, and you might hear that in the news quite a bit, but one thing that I really wanted to focus or to um, bring your attention to is the fact that there's a lot of resiliency in um, places like Chicago South Side, despite the fact that this um, the neighborhood has been hit with like, for example, poverty. So that's what drew my attention to um, Chicago South Side, and I really wanted to look at um, you know whether there's a, a differences between heterosexual and sexual minority adolescents when it comes to perceived school safety school violence continues to be a serious concern especially for adolescents who are African American and who are identified as sexual minorities and unfortunately many of the protective factors there's been a lot of research on protective factors focusing on African American adolescents But one thing that we tend to forget is that African-American as well as other adolescents of other racial and ethnic groups are very diverse. They're not monolithic groups, but they're very diverse. And that brought me to this study, which is to look at whether those protective factors that are identified in the research literature might apply to African-Americans who are sexual minorities, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, et cetera, as they would be for heterosexual adolescents. So that so was the- if
0: just, Sorry, if I can just interrupt you for a second, I just wanna capsule encapsulate what you're saying. So, so basically what you are saying is that you were really interested to see how these youth perceived their sense of safety within the school system, whether yeah. or not they feel comfortable, whether or not they feel secure, whether or not they can walk in that door and feel like that's a safe place for them. And that you recognize along with the literature that this is to, to put an umbrella under or over African Americans really, as we know, does not capture the diversity within any particular group. And so you wanted to parse out this subset and look and see if within the African American community, particularly these youth in this area, um. Are there differences between the heterosexual, people who identified sort of is within their sexual identity as heterosexual versus LGBT, some sort of sexual minority, and to see if their feelings of safety shifted as a result of the, again, this additional piece of their identity?
1: Yes. Okay, great. So that is definitely the main you know, focus of my study, of the study. And we want to also look at the multiple contextual protective factors that occurs not only in the home, but also in the school and neighborhood. So we looked at um, protective factors occurring in various contexts, which follows the social ecological perspective that, you know, social workers have really relied on.
0: And it's um, so social worky. I love it because yes. it's, it's awesome because you're you're looking A at strengths and protective factors, but you're also really looking at the contextual factors. And as social workers, we know that we're all about those layers of systems and those um, um, you know, micro, meso, macro, ecological way of viewing people because we have this person and environment perspective that yes. we can't remove at, people out of. So I love that it's it's so social worky.
1: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And you know, this is very. This is a very important perspective in our field. And, you know, even today, clinicians continue to rely on the ecological model for assessment, as well as, you know, targeted intervention.
0: Yeah, for and I th- actually have doctoral students who use it as their organizing theory for really how to understand whatever problem, including clinical interventions, and how to really think about our approach to practicing. So it is alive and well, groffenbrenner is not going anywhere.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that was part of my dissertation as well. So <laughs> we looked at, you know, the, I looked at the ecological factors associated with student behaviors. Ah, interesting. So, yes. So what were, we,
0: what were some of the main take home messages that you found? What were some of your key findings?
1: So the main take home messages is that many of the protective factors that are significant for heterosexual adolescents were not found to be significant for sexual minorities, with the exception of one, which is caring teachers, which does not surprise me. Mm -hmm. Um, This shows that, you know, of course, caring teachers is a very important protective factor, but also for us to really identify protective factors, we really need to consider diversity of you know african americans as well as like other adolescents adolescents of other minority groups for example like you know for example um parents might be a protective factor for african americans as literature has shown but for um those who are sexual minority it may not be a protective factor because maybe you know adolescents who are sexual minorities are likely to hide their sexual orientation from their parents so they may not rely on their parents for support because they're afraid of how their parents might react.
0: Mm. So, so it sounds like for you, it's the really one of the key messages is don't make an assumption um, that the same protective factors are going to be universal across yes. one particular group, because once you start looking and drilling down into the di- um, different identities within these again, huge umbrella groups, you're gonna see how different they exist in the world and how, um, well, I guess it's just, like you said, not everything can be translated perfectly once you start layering on the complexities of each individual. Yes.
1: So that's definitely the take home message for this study. Great. And- It's also important for clinicians, especially social workers who are working in urban communities. They need to really address homophobic bullying and violence, which can make students feel unsafe in their school. And I do want to throw out that homophobic bullying can make a student feel unsafe in their school. And it could be not just LGBT, but also heterosexual adolescents who are perceived as LGBT. And studies have found that. Mm -hmm. Um, This study is very important for social workers also because oftentimes social workers, are not prepared to provide um, services for um, students identified as LGBT who are also living in, for example, like urban areas. Urban areas that are, you know, that tends to be low resourced. Um, Clinicians, they also need to work with, you know, schools, school officials and other stakeholders Um, to help create a safe and inclusive environment. So that's the most important take home message to work with, you know, schools as well as stakeholders in helping to create a very safe and inclusive school environment for LGBT, as well as for heterosexual adolescents.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So workers in that way, if you think about systems, they could work individually to try and help address kids within the school but then they can also work on the meso level and really do program development yes. to try and create a more welcoming, safer, um, inclusive environment and And then, of course, on the policy level, we need to always be advocating for more just policies that address issues of justice, equity, diversity,
1: inclusion. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, we're although very slowly kind of getting there, but we still have long ways to go, to be honest.
0: So, you know, one of the things that you talked about um, was that school supports were helpful for heterosexual Black youth, um, but that that was definitely less of a factor for youth who are part of a marginalized sexual have a marginalized sexual identity. Um, So why do you think that, you gave an example of the family, but what is it that you think about what other community factors that really play into this finding?
1: So our findings were not surprising. To be honest, like even before I started the study, when I was formulating the research questions, this is sort of what I predicted, and it turned out to be that way. Um, It could be that, for example, you know, school supports are very important, as our studies have shown that, you know, teacher support or caring teachers can make a difference for um, not only heterosexual but also LGBT adolescents. But um, other factors such as school bonding was not a protective factor for LGBT, although it was for heterosexual adolescents. It could be that schools may not be adequately addressing homophobia, and there's homophobia that's rampant in the school environment. Mm -hmm. And that tends to be in, uh, you know, um, many school districts where, you know, either homophobia or homophobic, you know, name calling, epithet, you know, et cetera, are either not being addressed adequately or not being addressed at all, or they're being supported or condoned, you know, in the school setting. So that can make a LGBT student feel unsafe and feel less bonded
0: Mm -hmm. to
1: their school, you know, um, which it might be why school bonding was not a protective factor for this group of students. Mm -hmm. Um, Some youth who are too connect also um, some youth who are, you know, connected to the school might, and this is in general might reinforce or might also reinforce homophobic, you know, feelings or um, homophobic sentiments. And that tends to be, you know, and if that does not get addressed, then students will continue to feel unsafe in their school, even with the pres- presence of protective factors.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, related to that, you said, um, and this is a quote from your study, at the community level, heterosexual adolescents feel connected to their neighborhood, were less likely to report feeling safe at school. Um, and you had said that you predicted this. and so. In some ways, it seems counterintuitive to me Mm -hmm. as as I look at that, but I wondered if it was that, because now we're talking about the community and not being connected to the school, and so I was wondering if if it's possible that the more they are connected to their community, which may be violent or may, may have higher levels of homophobia or Again, more just um, community um, disruptions. Would that be that then that gets generalized to the school setting? So I wondered if you could explain this finding a little bit. Again, that at the community level, heterosexual Mm -hmm. adolescents who feel connected to the neighborhood were less likely to report feeling safe in school.
1: So that finding seems a little bit surprising. But at the same time, it wasn't as surprising because it could be that, and I'm just surmising here, but it could be that in some neighborhoods where violence is rampant due to poverty, Mm -hmm. those who are too connected to their neighborhood might at the same time feel less safe in their school environment because of violence that's going on in their school. Mm -hmm. And for some youth who are too connected or too involved in their community, they might also be involved in the things that are going on in their neighborhood, like for example, risky or delinquent or criminal activities mm-hmm. and because they're too involved in that that's the way they perceive their environment so they might feel that you know um institutions within their environment such as schools might be less safe i don't know if that makes sense but yeah. that's something that you know we were kind of thinking
0: yeah no when i read that i mean one of the things that made me think about it was that if you if you're connected to this neighborhood that you perceive as unsafe and you see all the things that are going on in the neighborhood or you're involved in, as you said, um, behaviors or risky, you know, some sort of risky behaviors or gang involvement, or you're seeing all that and you really feel grounded and that's part of your identity, then I would imagine that gets generalized to the school setting. And similar, if your school is embedded within that same community, the more you identify with that more unsafe, um, risky, or higher level of violent community, the more you're gonna perceive that that same, as you said, that same institution is going to have a similar um, existence in their lives. So why, if your community is unsafe, why would you expect your school to be safe if, if, you, if that's your knowledge base, if that's what you think of as baseline in terms of your own community? Absolutely. Yeah. So I did. I did think that was really interesting to think about, and again, that really speaks to how much work we need to do—not just within schools, but within the context—and to be really thinking about the the importance of looking at housing security, food security, um, vocational options, job training, and making sure community services are accessible because we know whether you're urban or rural, that this is a huge issue in many communities is getting people in the door and getting access to to different pieces.
1: And to the needed resources, which definitely is lacking in these neighborhoods, unfortunately.
0: Yes, and so that that leads me to another question. you know, given how stressed out school members are, and we've been, it's in the news constantly, um, I feel like it's regularly coming up about school personnel, teachers especially, just being incredibly overworked, incredibly stressed, and they're now dealing with a population of kids who are post-COVID, and we know that this group of kids are are struggling more with mental health issues than previous kids, um, so... What can social workers do to really support different youth, but also the staff and the administration and the teachers who are trying, who are juggling many many hats in places with very few resources?
1: So the first thing I want to say, and that's a very important question, um, is that this study was take this study was conducted prior to COVID, but oh. of course COVID. Of course, COVID can affect how teachers interact with their students and so forth. COVID changed a lot of things, but school social workers in this case play a very important role. It's important for school social workers to not only focus on working with students, but also with teachers and staff members to help assist them in mitigating stressors so that they could better support their students. That's very important. And teachers oftentimes they're less involved because they tend to be uninvolved or less involved because they either don't know how to, you know, how to get involved in students, you know, um, personal issues or they feel that it's not their job. They might say stuff like, this is above my pay grade. It's not really something that I should be involved in, but it, teachers do can and can make a difference as our studies have shown. Sure. Um, but for them to effectively provide, you know, support for their students, they also need to be provided with support as well especially those who are working in challenging environments such as, you know, low-resourced schools. Mm -hmm. Um, They also need to, school social workers also need to address the issue of homophobia and how homophobia might affect adolescents, especially in low-income neighborhoods. When we talk about homophobic bullying or, you know, anti-gay bullying in schools, many of the studies have been conducted in um, suburban areas with less diverse adolescents. And of course, um, in comparison to social workers working in you know those environments, social workers working in urban school environments tend to be less prepared because they're not certain how to effectively address, for example, homophobia, which is likely to be rampant in you know those school environments. So Mm -hmm. social workers really need to work with relevant key you know state uh, relevant and key stakeholders to address that.
0: Yeah, and again, it just feels like there's so many different points of entry for that work um, on that individual, the micro, meso and macro level. So I appreciate that. Um, You know, one of the the other things that I, I was wanting to highlight in your article is that you talked about the impact of structural and institutional racism and how much you believe that these experiences really factor into the levels of safety that the youth feel. And one of the things that often comes up within clinical social work is um, how can we be fighting for social justice within a clinical setting or a clinical practice? So for those clinical social workers who are really interested in promoting social justice and anti-racism, anti-racist institutions, what recommendations do you have for those, even those in private practice or those practicing community agencies? Um, But how can we really ensure that as clinical social workers, we are walking into whatever setting we're working within with that social justice lens?
1: So that's an excellent question about the issue of structural and institutional racism, I will confess, when I initially wrote the article, when we initially wrote the article and submitted it to the Clinical Social Work Journal, we did receive criticism from the reviewers who raised that issue. How can you, how can you not, or how can you overlook the issue of structural and institutional racism, which, affects, which is likely to affect how African-American adolescents are going to feel about their environment, especially their school environment? Well, bravo so we, to our
0: reviewers then, who really uh, pointed this out. Because for me, this is, I feel like one of the, we actually changed our mission statement um, when I took over as editor in chief, because I really wanted issues of JEDI, again, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, to be part of our regular dialogue within the journal. And for me, it's very important that these conversations are being inter, interspersed and woven into every article that we are publishing because, again, as social workers, if we're not considering the cultural context and we're not considering intergenerational um, trauma and we're not considering racism and homophobia and all the isms and the institutional and structural issues that are affecting all of us, and obviously all of us in different ways, then I don't feel like we're being as consistent as we could be with our mission as social workers first. And then um, how do we translate that into our own specialization? Um, in this case, clinical social work. So again, kudos for our reviewers. I'm really glad that they, oh, absolutely. they were um, they were on it.
1: And you know, they actually, we're right in saying that. Um, initially, I was like, well, I mean, I don't wanna um, stray away from the what the focus of the article is, of the study is. But at the same time, I said, how can I, you know, focus on, you know, African-American adolescents living in poverty and who are identified as LGBT without talking about the structural and institutional racism? Because we're living in an era where, for example, there's been violence against African-Americans by the police um where there were several cases of african american you know young men and women getting killed you know that's by right. the law enforcement so but it's important to continuously be educated about issues of structural and institutional racism so that's that's actually now the obligation of social workers working with you know any population and they need to be continuously edu- educated about issues of structural and institutional racism for example, through continuing education that provides, you know, workshops on how to effectively address, you know, racism that's not just individual, but also structural and institutional, which is sadly still pervasive in our society. Mm -hmm. It's also important for social workers to seek ways to address racism, both at the micro and the macro level, whether you consider yourself a you know, clinical social worker working in private practice or whether you consider yourself as a macro social worker, it's important. There's a lot of division, as you know, between the micro and the macro social workers, even today. But this is a good example of how the social social work profession needs to be more integrated. They need to consider the micro as well as the macro aspect in addressing the issues of structural and institutional racism. Um, Also, it's important for social workers to understand and appreciate intersectionality, Mm -hmm. recognizing that racism and homophobia affects people differently. Like, for example, um, you know, for those who identify as LGBT and African-American, so they're both, you know, they have dual minority status. They're going to be impacted differently as opposed to, for example, those who identify as white heterosexual, I, I'm sorry, white LGBT or those who identify as African-American heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so, of course, you know, um, there is complexity in addressing such issues, but it's important to really look at, um, you know, issues of racism with broader lens, not just the clinical or the micro lens, but also the macro lens.
0: Yes, I I think that's really well said. And again, as I started off the podcast, one of the reasons I wanted to highlight this study is because of the intersectionality that this study really brings forward. And I think that as clinical social workers, we we need to constantly be thinking about these, um, in many ways, a Venn diagram of all the different identities yep. and how they layer onto each other, and who, and also. our own own identities. And then um, in, in psychodynamic language, we talk about a triadic third or the analytic third. And so we each have our own identities and our clients have our own identities. And then there's the Venn diagram of how those intersect and the complexities that come along with all of those different combinations and always within the context of the environment. So the the current as well as the historical. So I again this was one of the reasons that for me this article really stood out and was an important one to highlight because I think it it illustrates these complexities in, in a very rich way. So I hope everybody will will follow the link in the show notes to to read it. So um we're we're getting close to the end, and I just wanted to see if you could. You've talked a little bit about this already, but if you could operationalize for social workers, what would be ways that they can really take your implications and put them into practice? What would be your top three ways that they can really operationalize the lessons learned from this study?
1: So if there were any take-home messages I would impart to the audience, one is the need to Employ social culturally relevant and sexual minority affirming interventions. That's very important. But for for that to happen, it's um, um it's also important to assist um sexual minority youth in identifying and reaching out to support groups, and that's the role of social workers. That you know we need to provide support, but also we need to. It's important for us to be instrumental in um providing um resources. For um, youth who are, you know, who feel unsafe in their school, for them to feel more safe, maybe it might be good for them to um, to be connected with a peer support group that can help make a difference.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: the third is the social personal um, assist, you know, social workers in understanding the cost of racial and homophobic bullying. So there are cost of racial and homophobic bullying. Those who are being bullied or who feel unsafe in their school are likely going to um, not do well in their school. And for these youth, especially those living in low-income neighborhoods or low-resource neighborhoods, they often see education as the only way out of poverty. So if they feel unsafe in their school, in their school environment, then they're likely going to do poorly in school and they're likely going to drop out. So we want to stop that. In order to stop that, we really need to, social workers really need to, you know, um help, um, need to help adolescents um or provide support for these adolescents. And though um the best way to do that is to really educate social workers about the cost of you know racism, homophobia, and other forms of isms that are still pervasive in the school and in our society.
0: Great, thank you. Um So so where are you going next with this research? What's what's your next project that you're building on, or maybe you've already started something?
1: So um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at this um, with broader, there are, of course, like with any studies, there are limitations and we're addressing some of these limitations. For example, one is that this study is conducted cross-sectionally. It's important to like, you know, look at it more longitudinally so that we can establish causality. Yeah. But of course, we also recognize the importance of qualitative research and how that can add to the findings. And I would really, you know, for those who are um for those who are willing to go a step further, I would really strongly advocate for mixed method study, which can increase the validity or the credibility of the findings.
0: I think That's it would be one. fascinating to hear from these youth themselves about absolutely what. I mean, i I love i'm I consider myself predominantly a qualitative researcher, and i there's maybe because I'm a clinician also, but just the richness of the stories and what you learn from the people themselves, I think, and and this would be fascinating to hear what what their what their experiences are and really digging down deep into to what they think about this phenomenon and what they think would be helpful. I think that
1: would be fascinating. Absolutely, and also, you know, um, looking at, for example, um, other variables that were overlooked, um, we felt that there were not enough protective, you know, protective factors at the neighborhood level. So maybe perhaps like, you know, um, is there neighborhood cohesiveness? Are there, you know, um, neighborhood leaders who are willing to make a difference? would that make an impact on adolescents' perceptions of their school, envi- school environment? Mm-hmm. So that's the other step that we want to you know take with the study. So look at the additional variables.
0: Yeah, every study ends up partially answering the question that you seek to, to answer, but it ends up, as you said, identifying all the things that you wish you had done differently. And then you try and repair that in the next study. And then you do the process all over again where you say, oh, we hadn't, we had just done this. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to share with our readers before we wrap up?
1: If you're a school social worker, I would really encourage you to advocate for social justice and um, create, um, help create an inclusive school environment. So that's something that I want, you know, people to, you know, take home, um, you know, from this article.
0: Great. Well, that is a great way to end. Thank you so much for being my guest tonight or today, depending on when you're listening to it. I really appreciate your time and sharing your expertise. And um, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And Best of luck to all the listeners. Best of luck in your endeavors.
0: Thank you.